Well, good morning. Second John is on page 1025 of my Bible, which might be helpful to some people here. Thank you for that pity laugh for that bad joke. We're going to look at the whole letter this morning. We've been in the letters of John all summer, mostly in 1 John. We finished off 1 John last week. Now we do this week on 2 John and next week on 3 John. Chris is going to be up next week to do the whole letter of 3 John. So this morning we're just in 2 John. We'll probably dip into some other places in 1 John that I'm sure you'll remember if you've been here this summer, just to help kind of flesh out some of the context, some more details about what's being said. Since it's the same author to a subsection of the same audience, uh, it'll be helpful to kind of cross-reference over to 1 John. I'll also just say uh, at the beginning here, I, I did make a handout. It's kind of the guts of the sermon. So if you didn't take notes or you're not good at taking notes, here you go. <laughs> and uh, we probably won't get to everything on the handout, and that's okay. So if you wanted to follow up and look at other scripture references there uh, later, later this afternoon or later this week, that'd be a great thing to do. Um, I don't intend to necessarily get to everything. So it's there if you want to access it. Um, Second John, I tried to summarize in one sentence at the top of your handout, the main idea this morning, you cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. You cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. And we took the text last week in kind of two sections, walk in love the first six verses, walk in truth the last seven, I think. Uh, But I split out the last two verses this time because I thought it made more sense. So we're all reading the Bible for our whole Christian lives, and we're understanding it better and making improvements on how we understand it. So praise the Lord. Uh, We're going to kind of take those three sections this, uh, this morning as well. I'll do a little bit of recap just because not everyone was here for the sermon, though since most of us were, this is going to be a lot more kind of dialogue, discussion, questions and answers from me and from, I trust, others of us in the class. Does that sound good? So if you were coming and you're a little sleepy because you haven't had your coffee yet, you got to, you know, snap to, and uh, it's going to have to be quick and interactive, or we're just going to sit here in silence. So, first thing to say about 2 John is that it's a letter written by someone to some people. And you can see that in verse 1. Look down at verse 1. He tells you who he is. The the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So he tells you he's the elder, and he tells you he's writing to the elect lady and her children And you may remember, we said the elect lady and her children probably refers to a Christian church, a congregation, in this group of congregations in and around Ephesus, which is a a Roman province of Asia at the time. This is probably late first century, 85 to 95 AD or so. Uh, And we understand that the elder is John the Apostle. John the Apostle who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation. So the reason he refers to himself as the elder is not to signify that he's a pastor necessarily, but to signify that he's the last living apostle. That he has a kind of unique spiritual authority and maturity that he's recognized by this congregation and all the sister congregations in this area with that kind of authority, with that kind of spiritual fatherhood. John is writing in a context where these churches in Asia have had people, just like picture it as if you're, you're one of them. So 2,000 years ago, you're in church. There's a bunch of churches around you that are like, like your church. 
and you're you're reading the scriptures and as much as you do that you're hearing God's word preached and uh, you're seeing it believed and lived out and followed and you know a lot of these people you can imagine it kind of similar to this room maybe so you know some of the people sitting next to you some of them really well and then all of a sudden something strange starts happening where people start saying something different than what you've always heard and thought since you've been a Christian and it's about who Jesus is so these people in the congregations start saying different things about Jesus that he didn't actually come in the flesh that he's not actually the Son of God that his death was important but not necessary maybe some of them are even saying it didn't happen he didn't really die he just looked like he died these are the sorts of things that were being said and you can imagine if you're in that congregation you're very confused probably by what's happening because you've heard from John and the Apostles maybe even the Lord Jesus himself certain truths about God and about Jesus and now you're hearing something very different from people you know probably pretty well so there's a sharp disagreement in this context of these churches especially this one that's being written to in 2nd John because people are saying different things about Jesus and there's nothing more central more foundational than that when it comes to Christianity when it comes to knowing who God is well these these folks who start saying new things about Jesus eventually leave because people aren't listening to them and first John says in chapter 2 verse 19 they went out from us because they were not of us if they'd been with us they would have remained with us but as it is they went out so that we might know that they're not of us so these people saying different things about Jesus seceded they left the congregations but unfortunately the situation is difficult because it doesn't stay there they don't just separate and that's the end of it rather they start coming back the friends you knew who are saying something different about Jesus following a different Jesus come back and try to get you to follow the same different Jesus can you imagine it I mean imagine if that happened here that's what it was like so John writes this letter in that context and he says what you've heard from the beginning is true and it hasn't changed don't go to the left or to the right don't follow after a different Jesus as if there was one there's not another Jesus follow after the one who came in the flesh the one who is God's son the one who died in the place of sinners that's John's context that's why John thinks this is so important because heaven and hell hang in the balance life and death hang in the balance right he says in first John whoever has the son has life which means if you don't have the son you don't have life if you have a different son you're giving up life so these things are vitally important that's a little bit about who John is who he's writing to kind of his context he then writes in the first uh, section there that they ought to walk in love and you can see that especially in verse 5 that he says and now I ask you dear lady which is a reference back to the elect lady and her children not as though I were writing you a new commandment but the one we had from the beginning that we love one another and you notice he says we there he puts himself in the group it's a way of saying don't separate from me because we follow the same Jesus right so he wants them to maintain this is how I put it on your handout maintain fellowship with God's people maintain fellowship with God's people that's what it means to walk in love 
And that's kind of the first half of what he's doing there. Let me pause there and see if you have any questions or comments you want to make. Any questions or comments on kind of the background there? And I'm seeing now that I didn't put it on your handout, which maybe is why some of you look puzzled. There should be a letter A under walk in love that says maintain fellowship with God's people. What happened there is select delete <laughs> print, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, but verse five is the first command of the letter. And now I ask you, right? The command, there's three commands in the letter. They help flesh out kind of what he's writing in order to urge his audience to do. The first one is walk in love. How do you do that? Maintain fellowship with God's people. Lyle? Yeah, just one observation that struck me as reading, while reading this, as you're just kind of describing the set like, wow, imagine if this error, heresy is spreading in your community. And it just struck me how John writes in verse 4, I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in the truth, which just conveyed to to me and Rita, it struck me, he's so happy to find some. Sounds like, wow, this must be a, just so widespread that error is just going through like wildfire and he is just so excited to find some walking in truth. Mm-hmm. But that, that was just a striking thing that I had not noticed before, but very helpful in kind of the, the teeing up. Yeah, yeah. So there are people walking, not in the truth, but in a lie, the false teachers, and it's John's joy that Christians would keep walking in the truth. Right. I think that's exactly right. And we thought about that a little bit. Is that our joy? We've got to ask that question. Yeah. Sam? About how long have the church been around at this point when he wrote the letter? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not sure that we know. Okay. I assume it's in the first generation of its life. I think that's a pretty safe assumption based on when we think the, ri- the letter is written. Uh, the dates that we assign to Jesus' life... Um, and kind of Paul's missionary journeys, and this is all after that, right? So this church probably hasn't been around for more than a couple of decades at most. Um, you're talking zero to 30 years is my best guess. Um, which, yeah, you'd think you would know everybody pretty well at that point. It's a good question. Any other questions or comments on kind of those first two verses, the background stuff, who John is, who he's writing to? Yeah. Jackie, right? Yes. Great. Yes. Um, so I love that you clarified what a left lady means, mm. mostly just from a Bible study standpoint. It's mm-hmm. good to know what all these things are. Yeah. But To the, you know, like, because he's referred to this, us in different ways throughout mm-hmm. his letter, but do you think there's some kind of significance to that Old Testament reference, the way that we're God's people? Like, is mm-hmm. there something there for that? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. So, uh, I didn't say this morning, uh, let me just quickly say, there's kind of three ways you can take elect lady and her children, that phrase in verse one. It's either a local church and its members, which is, I think, the best one. 
Uh, it's the universal church, which transcends time and space. So all Christian congregations kind of put together in as much as they're full of believers. Or it's like a, bi- a physical woman in, uh, in a church with her biological physical children, right? And if you've read the letter before, maybe that's the way you've always kind of taken it. I said the reason that we ought to take it as a local church is fourfold. Uh, one is if you look at the whole letter, you're dealing with a bunch of the word you in English, which can be either singular or plural. It can be you or y'all where I'm from. And it's always y'all with only two exceptions. Verse one and verse four. Everywhere else in the letter, the word you is plural, y'all. So he's writing to a group of people and they have to be a group of Christians. Two is, I think Jackie was kind of hinting at this, in the Old Testament, you just know if you've read your Bible, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, often is referred to in kind of feminine terms, either feminine language, feminine roles. So just a couple of examples, Israel's called a wife, a bride, a mother, a daughter. So it's very normal for God's people to be portrayed in this kind of female way. The third thing to say is that Peter, in 1 Peter 5, refers to the church at Rome as a she, she who is at Babylon, 1 Peter 5:13. So it's normal to refer to even Christian congregations in female terms, she who is at Babylon. The fourth thing is that in verse 13, you get the children of your elect sister. So whatever you do with the elect lady, you have to do with the elect sister. Makes more sense, I think, to take them both as Christian congregations. The elect sister being the one John's from and writing from, and the elect lady being the one that John is writing to. The only thing I didn't include in there, uh, which was in the sermon, is to say the word lady is actually a really significant one. It's not just the word for woman. It's the word for a female lord. It's that kind of lady. So in Greek, when we say Jesus is Lord, Greek is he's kurios. That's the Greek word for Lord. This word is kuria. It's the female form of the exact same word. Does that make sense? So you have the Lord and his lady, the church. So kind of for all five of those reasons, I think it makes the most sense to take it as one of the congregations in Ephesus amidst a group of congregations who are dealing with this same issue. John's congregation is there. They've had people in these congregations start saying false things about Jesus. So he's dealing with it kind of as a whole geographically. So why, your, your question now, why call the elect lady the elect lady instead of some other name? Um, it's, it's tough to say for sure. I think probably uh, John is dealing with kind of the move from Old Testament to New Testament, where God's people look a certain way in the Old Testament, Israel, a nation, defined by laws and festivals and geographical location, the land of Canaan. Uh, And then in the New Testament, God's people, the church, look a different way. They transcend nations and geographical boundaries and even people groups. So it's not just one ethnic people group anymore, but it's a bunch of people, all the people groups, ultimately. And so referring to God's people, the church, as the way you would refer to God's people, Israel, is kind of identifying, hey, the shape and structure of God's people has changed since Jesus came. Right? And I think John is trying to link up with that. He's saying, you remember how God has always had his people, the, the lady of the Old Testament, Israel? Well, now God has his people, the church of the New Testament. Right? So it's kind of that, I think, is what's going on. Does that make sense? Does it interact with your question? It does. Praise God. <laughs>
The worst thing is I'm up here answering a question you didn't a ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, what else from the first couple of verses there? Any other comments or questions before we move on to the first section? All right, let's go walk in love. So you notice verse 3. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now, he's, he's talking to people who are in the truth, and he's in the truth, and they're dealing with people who are not in the truth, false teachers. So John offers this kind of fourfold comfort to the people that he's writing to right off the bat. It's one, you're in the truth. It's two, you're not alone in the truth. There's other people in the truth. It's three, you're in the truth by God's power, and it's four, he'll keep you there. Okay. So he's reassuring them of their identity. You might know if you've read other New Testament letters, it's very common for somebody like Paul to start off with grace to you or grace and peace, as if it's a kind of offer. Like, I want you to have God's grace and peace. This is much stronger than just a wish. He's asserting grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Because you know God, because you're in the truth, you have God's gospel blessing. But then notice... John grounds the great gospel blessings of God in God. He goes into the Trinity because he talks about the Father and the Father's Son. It's interesting, too, that there's one gospel work of redemption, the grace, mercy, and peace, that's connected to two persons, God the Father and the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. This is one just breadcrumb of how we understand there to be one God there's one gospel work. So the grace, mercy, and peace will be with them, just like the truth is with them. He's kind of assuring them. And then he tells them uh, what Lyle brought us to earlier, verse 4. I, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And I think that command of the Father is maybe most clear in 1 John 3, uh, verse 23. 1 John 3, verse 23. Can somebody read that? And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he commanded us. Excellent. Yeah, so what did the Father command? That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, that we, and love one another. That we believe in Jesus, yep, and that we love those who believe in Jesus. Right? So the command of the Father is, we could say, Walk in the truth. What does that mean? Believe in the Son. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the truth. Uh, God's word is the truth. Right? Your word is truth, Jesus says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we have Jesus and his word being the truth here in 2 John. And the command of the Father is, believe in the Son and love one another, which is where he goes next, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So the commandment, believe in the Son, goes with the commandment, love one another, which is what we saw in 1 John 3. Uh, the love one another command is both new and old. That's what John says. He says it here in 2 John, and he says it back in 1 John 2 as well. It's new in the sense that 
Well, actually, let me start with it's old. It's old in the sense that it goes all the way back to Moses. Moses taught us love one another. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe you didn't know that was in the Old Testament. It is. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's also old in the sense that it's basic to your Christianity. Like from the moment you became a Christian, loving other Christians has been part of the package deal. So believe in the Son and love one another, right? It's old. It's also new. It's new in the sense that when Jesus comes, he kind of ups the ante. He says, don't just love your neighbor as yourself. Do that. But also, love other Christians the way that Jesus has loved you. John 13. Which is a higher standard you can hear. Right? It's not just love my neighbor as I love myself. It's now love other Christians the way Jesus loves me. So there's the newness and the oldness of the command. He also tells you what love is. It's obedience to God's word. That's what love is. And we ought, to, uh, we ought to really let God in the Bible define what love is. We shouldn't bring our own understandings of love to the Bible and make the Bible submit to our understanding. right? We should instead bring our own understandings of love to the Bible and be corrected by the Bible. <laughs> That's what we want to do, always, on everything. And especially on what love is. And he gives you a really clear definition of love here in verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Notice the commandment is not singular anymore. It's plural. So it's everything God says for us to do in relation to other people. How do you love someone? Obey God's word as it relates to you and them. That's how you love someone. So walk in love. It's kind of the first foot of the walking we're about to do the second foot, walk in truth. But let me pause there and see if there's any comments or questions. And just to kind of oil the chamber a little bit, uh, let me ask you this. As you think about this command to love one another, what comments or questions do you have about how that applies to us in our church? Maybe some examples of what that would look like or questions about what that would look like. Let's kind of move to apply specific to this congregation, walk in love. Yeah, great question. I think it relates in two ways to the, the issue of the false teachers. One is, and I've already said in verse 5, that we love one another. So John is, I think, first and foremost saying, people have come and told you about another Jesus. Don't go with them. Instead, stay with us. Because the truth about Jesus has not changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right. So the first thing it means with relation to the false teachers don't break fellowship with God's people. Maintain it. Stay with John and the apostles because they're with the Lord Jesus. Stay with the other Christian congregations because they're with the Lord Jesus. That's one thing, probably the most contextual thing it means to love one another, is keep affirming the Christianity of the people who are following the true Jesus and vice versa. They're going to do the same for you. Okay. The other thing, though, I think there's something about the nature of this false teaching that ends up in a kind of lawless lifestyle. 
And it's interesting. When you start saying different things about Jesus, it shows up in your life. It's not just a, a belief that you hold in your head. It has to do with how you live, how you treat other people, especially how you treat other Christ followers. So if you go back to 1 John 4, we get a little bit more on this. I think this is on your handout, the reference. But 1 John 4, uh, starting in verse 7, can somebody read 1 John 4, starting in verse 7? Pause right there. Love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves knows God, has been born of God. If you, what does that mean? If you don't love, you don't know God. Okay? So these false teachers are coming, claiming to know God and to speak on God's behalf. And John, one of the things he's saying is, hey, if they don't love the other Christians, you can know they're not from God. Keep going, Alice. Verse 8. Mm. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, Pause right there. Propitiation means that God's wrath has been satisfied. So if you don't know that word, that's a very common Bible word, especially in the ESV translation. Propitiation means that I've sinned against God and I deserve punishment. But Jesus took my place for my sin, died like I should have, even though he didn't need to. He died because I needed to die. He took my punishment, and now God's wrath against me is satisfied. It's propitiated. That's what that means. Keep going. No one has, seen, has ever seen God. Excellent. Thank you, Alice. Yeah, so there's a sense in which John is saying, you can know that somebody knows the invisible God based on how they treat the visible God's people. Right? And the false teachers are showing you by their life that they don't know God because they don't love God's people. So there's something about God's commands for them that they're ignoring, neglecting, disregarding, don't care about. And John is saying, even though they say, I'm from God, listen to me, you can tell from their life that that's not true. Does that make sense? It's, it's kind of like this. In, a, in, a, in the same way, you have a, a husband who's married to a wife and who says, I'm with Jesus, and yet he's harsh with her in severe, unchristian ways repeatedly, unrepentantly, willfully, consciously. Like, at some point you stop believing him who's saying, I'm with Jesus, because of how he lives. You can use whatever example you want. The point is that you can undo with your life what you say with your mouth. I think that's, that's one of the things John is telling us. In First John, he kind of gives you these three tests that you can apply to anyone who says they're from God. Right? There's the moral test. Do they keep God's commandments? There's the social test. Do they love God's people? And there's the doctrinal test. Do they confess God's son? And we were just talking about the social test. So why does he say love one another? I think it's because the false teachers aren't. Any other comments, thoughts, questions, follow up on that? We're kind of the first chunk there. 
Jackie. If we were talking about social things, I guess I was thinking of that wrong. When I was hearing walking truth and how does that apply to loving God's people in the church, I was thinking more along the lines of it's our responsibility as church members to make sure that our elders are accountable and that they're teaching truth from the pulpit, but it's also my elders' responsibility to love me well by doing the work to teach the truth yeah. so that I can be washed in the word. That's true day. too. Yeah. So that was more what I was thinking about with the link between walking in truth and loving God's people well is that we are all doing our jobs well, mm-hmm. which requires responsibility on both parts. Yeah, that. that's true too. Yeah, we're responsible for the teaching we hear. Um, I think about Galatians 1, right, which Paul chastises the Galatian Christians because they've left the gospel and they've embraced a false gospel, and he, he thinks they should know better. He says, if anyone comes to you proclaiming a different gospel, let him be cursed. Don't listen to him. Cut him off. Don't listen to him, right? Close your ears. So yeah, we're accountable for the teaching that we hear. I think that's true, too. Um, that's part of what it means to walk in truth. I think in the context of kind of the letters of John, the love one another commands are doing the work of Christians between Christians. And anytime you talk about groups of Christians, you're always going to have to have the category of someone who says they're a Christian, but actually isn't. And the way you see that is by how they live their life, by what they confess about God and his word and his son, by their relationship to God's commandments and the rest of God's people, right? That's kind of, those are, that's what John is doing in 1 John. He's got these people who came from the congregations, came back to the congregations, and are saying wrong things about Jesus. And he wants the the Christians to know, here's how you can test that out. I think to Jackie's point, that's part of walking in love, helping others walk in the truth. That's exactly right. Let me ask you this. Is, uh, so he's going to go in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, and then we sort of pick up walk in truth from there. And one of the things he says is, don't receive them into your house or give them any kind of greeting. That's verses 10 and 11. Is it fair to characterize that as love? And why or why not? So is that loving to separate from people? Tell me your name. Sam. Sam. Yeah, makes it less confusing to by the other Sam. Two Sams. Great. It is loving. It is loving because you're preventing um, contact with that person from other people, like the propagation of the teaching about the box. Okay, yeah, I think that's one way it's loving. Are there other ways? 
Isn't it also like you're avoiding affirming that what you're avoiding suggesting that what they believe is accurate? Because mm -hmm. if you're just like, oh, you can hang out with us, it's fine, we all basically believe the same thing, then yeah. going Yeah, I think that's right. Anything else? I don't think we should be supporting sin. Mm. So there's a difference between spending time with an unbeliever who might even be saying things that are completely anti-Jesus, but it could be loving in the sense that you are intentionally trying to teach them who Jesus is, and that's a whole separate conversation of how that's appropriate. But it's not loving to let them be part of God's people in a way that we're like, this is totally fine and acceptable. You completely disregard everything about who Jesus is, but we're going to let you just be part of us. That's different. Mm. And no, they should not be part of that because you're also not loving God's people who might not be super mature in the Lord, and you're exposing them to all this other... I would not let my son hang out with vipers. Mm. I just wouldn't. Mm. Because that's not safe and loving of me. I'm supposed to protect him. Mm -hmm. And that's not protecting. It's a great illustration. Yeah. It's good. Don't let your children or your Christian friends hang out with vipers. <laughs> physically or spiritually. Right. Amen. It's good. Any other ways you can think of? It's loving. We've talked a lot about how it's loving for other Christians. Is there any way in which it's loving for the false teachers themselves? Or for other people who aren't involved, who might hear about it or see it? Um, yeah, great. So I, I kind of was picking up verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And he's going to eventually say in verses 10 and 11 that we shouldn't greet them in any way, welcome them into our homes. There's a sense in which what he's saying is separate from them socially. Okay, we can talk about what all that means and doesn't mean in a second. But my first question is, how is that loving? Is that loving? Why or why not? So separating from someone? That's it. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. That yeah, that's great. So we, and, I, and then I said, we've talked about how it's loving for the false teacher a lot. A couple of different examples that are, I think, good. Is it loving... I'm sorry, we've talked about how it's loving for other Christians in our congregation. Makes sense. Is it loving for the false teacher or for other people who aren't involved but might hear or see that situation? Tell me your name. Bryson. Bryson. Oh, hey, man. I couldn't recognize you back there. Sorry. Well, so another piece of that would be like the world, if we're talking about the way God defines love, the world will define love as affirm what I think or affirm what I teach or affirm who I am. And if I don't, if I separate myself, I'm not giving them that. I'm not affirming their teaching, who they are, what they're saying, what they're about, which then screws them up to, hopefully, to some reality that we're not, this is not right, as opposed to saying you are right and, and continuing that cycle. Yeah, it's true. How do you help someone become a Christian who isn't one but thinks they already are? I think that the entire book here sort of talks about it, which is like the, the truth is loving. So being willing to have that uncomfortable conversation, even if it comes down to like, you know, someone, I don't know, create your hypothetical scenario where someone's going to stay with you and you're going to help support them while they do a certain work, prosperity gospel, you know, whatever. Um, 
and you tell them that you can't support them in that mm -hmm. and then you explain to them why the things they're saying aren't true there is love in that because it does i mean as a human being especially if it's someone that that you do care for it's difficult to give them to feed them the truth mm -hmm. that, that you know they don't want to hear mm -hmm. yeah i think that's right i'm just trying to get at i think there's a sense in which being clear on truth is loving yes i think that's what john's saying that's right now i recognize important caveat here and you should recognize too there is an unloving way to wield the truth just go on the internet for five seconds and you'll see it, okay? Don't do that. That's going to invalidate the very truth you're trying to proclaim, okay? In the same way that a false teacher comes and says, I'm from God, listen to me, but their life undoes what they say, we can do that as Christians if we look nothing like Jesus and talk about him a bunch, okay? We ought to not do that either. Now, I don't think that's John's main point, so we're not spending a ton of time on that, but that is important to know and to say and to walk in as well. There is an unloving way to wield the truth, and we ought to turn from that, right? But I think in, in the context of this letter, yeah, it's, it's loving to be clear on the truth. It's helpful for people. The last thing we want is to inoculate people to the gospel. And what I mean by that is to cause them to think they have received the gospel when they haven't, is the hardest, you've just put yourself in the hardest position <laughs> to actually help them understand the gospel. You've inoculated them to it, right? It's like a, a disease. You want somebody to not catch a disease, so you give them the disease so that their body, their, their uh, like, yeah, their system knows how to fight that thing. Well, now they can't get the disease. Don't do that with the gospel. <laughs> you don't want to do that. If you're unclear on what the gospel is and what it looks like to believe the gospel and to live a life according to that, you can actually cause people to think they've received it when they haven't, right? And it, it's really hard. Like if you, uh, where I'm from, in kind of the middle part of the country, the Bible Belt, they call it, it's really hard to convince someone they're not a Christian because everybody is, or so they think, right? But it turns out being a Christian in that context just means you grew up in church or your parents are Christians or that's just what you've always thought and never really thought about anything else. For a lot of people. I think, like, just building on that, like, when you read the Gospels, Jesus was always in the business of addressing people like that. Mm. Like, there's not necessarily a formula he used, but when you look at it, each person that he dealt with, he kind of kicked out the prop that they were trusting in, mm. you know, for their, yeah. their righteousness. And Amen. Well said. Any other thoughts on how it's loving to be clear on truth? Or comments or questions on anything so far? And also, also just think, you know, you, you made a comment a second ago is how there's an unloving way to wield the truth. Yeah. It's just rooted in ourselves not remembering the work that the Lord has done for us. Yep. Totally. And the kind of posture that, that wields truth lovingly has to first be just remembering that I'm a needy, sinful person in and of myself, and I need mm -hmm. Jesus just as much as the person that I'm sharing the truth with. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah. just a helpful reminder, I think, for us. Yeah, amen. Um, it can be easy for me to think that somebody can think their way into this, and that's not true, right? Now, when you state it like that, it's like, well, why'd you ever think that? That's silly. But if you think about your own life for a second, when somebody has problems and you're talking to them and you're trying to help them see whatever's true, do you act like if we just have enough conversations and I just provide enough evidence and enough argument to the contrary, I will persuade this person? I do that. It just misses the whole part about how God the Holy Spirit has to do it, <laughs> and I can't. Does that make sense? Now, of course, God the Holy Spirit uses my arguments at times. Praise God for that. Feeble and frail as they are. <laughs> but yeah, we shouldn't think we could convince each other into this. We need God to work. I think that's a way of, yeah, fleshing out what Chris just said. There, there's ways in which if we don't recognize our own state, if we don't humble ourselves, realize we're spiritually poor, just like the person we're talking to, that we need God to change us, to make us new, then yeah, of course we'll wield the truth in an unloving way. Let's press on to, uh, just in light of time, and because this was preached on last week, <laughs> uh, I want to touch a couple of other things and then talk about this last section. So, uh, walk in truth, verses 7 to 11. I think I say on the handout, he gives you in kind of verse 8 and verse 10, the next two commands. So verse 8, watch yourselves, which I summarize as a phrase elsewhere in the Bible, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Right? So how do you walk in truth? You watch yourselves. And we should know that that yourselves is a mutual thing. It's not just me individually watching out for myself. It's y'all, if you're in this church, watching out for me, and vice versa. That's what he means by watch yourselves. Keep each other accountable. Help each other to walk in the truth. That's one thing it means. And then the second thing is, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him, is the third command of the letter. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So if walk in love means maintain fellowship with God's people, walk in truth means watch yourselves and break fellowship with false teachers and reject their false teaching. It means don't keep affirming them as Christians if you were doing that. Okay? Remember the historical setting. Picture yourself in it. You're in the congregation. You know these people. They've started saying false things about Jesus. They've left and they've come back and they're trying to convince you. If you thought they were Christians... You should stop telling them that. That's part of what it means to break fellowship. They've got a different Jesus. Give them the true Jesus, right? In a Christ-like way, of course, which is what we've been talking about. So in verse 10 and 11, helpful to know what this greeting is. Uh, notice that if you greet them, you take part in their wicked works. Verse 11. Um, four distinctions for discerning how this command applies, verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We've got to realize, one, we're talking about false teachers here, not just people who believe false things. These are people who are actively trying to propagate falsehood. That's why he calls them deceivers in verse 7. They're not just being deceived. They themselves are also deceivers. So remember that. 
Number two, these are official welcomes, not just passing exchanges, right? So it's not just like, hey, what's up, is the greeting he's talking about. In the context in which this was written, the greeting is a social, cultural thing. When somebody who doesn't know the community comes into the community, they need someone to vouch for their character. This guy's with me, he's okay. Because strangers have no standing in law or custom, right? They need a patron. They need somebody who will own, hey, I know this guy, you can trust him. So it's that kind of greeting that we're talking about. Number three, these are essential matters, not just secondary or tertiary ones. They're not disagreeing about who should be baptized. They're disagreeing about who Jesus is. It's more fundamental than that. And number four, this is fellowship, not evangelism. So if a missionary from a cult religion comes to your door and wants to evangelize you, you have my permission to invite them into your dinner table and evangelize them. I think that's a good godly thing to do. Give them 15 minutes to share without interrupting them. And then you share for 15 minutes and ask them not to interrupt you. (laughs) Give them the gospel, right? Uh, And ask questions. You know, I think that's a fine thing to do. What you can't do is say, yeah, brother, sister, come on in. You don't want to give the indication that you have fellowship with this person because they have a different Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. You can't have fellowship with people from other religions because that kind of fellowship doesn't fit your faith. You're in different faiths. That's what John's talking about. So how can we avoid greeting false teachers? Don't give money. Don't give encouragement. And don't aid them in any other way, physically or spiritually, so that they can propagate their false teaching. Okay? So I think you gave the example of prosperity gospel. Do not donate to TBN or Joel Osteen. That would be out of step with verses 10 and 11. Okay? It's not inviting the Mormon missionary into your house so you can share the gospel with them. It is giving money to prosperity preachers. Okay? Those are just by two examples. There's lots of other things this would apply to. But uh, I did want to spend a little bit of time on that just in case you were wondering, does this mean I shouldn't talk to non-Christians or false teachers? I don't think it means that. I don't think it's a, hey, what's up? Okay. I don't think the Bible teaches social shunning, like cut off all social interactions. I think we're supposed to have social interactions so we can evangelize, right? We want people to come to know Jesus. Any comments or questions about that? Anything you think would be helpful to bring out, Rusty? I was thinking it's almost like a negative example of what happens in Luke 10 when Jesus sent out the 72. Um, and he says, like, go, in, go into the town, see if somebody accepts you to the house, make mm. that your base of operation. Yeah. If they don't, then walk away. It's kind of like the opposite of that. So in this case, it's the false teachers coming in, and he's saying, don't let them make your house a base of operation. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Well put. And the phrase, gone out into the world, in verse 7, is a technical phrase for missionary. That's what it means to go out into the world. So one commentary I read helpfully said, these are Satan's missionaries. That's the kind of person we're talking about. Somebody who's gone out to spread falsehood about who Jesus is. That's the kind of person we want to give no help to. Well said. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions on that second half? Yeah, Sarah. Good question, yeah. So if you look up in verse 7, he tells you kind of the tip of the spear of the issue here, the doctrinal issue. He says, they do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
That's the incarnation. So in order to be a Christian, you have to confess that Jesus came in the flesh, that he preexisted as God forever in eternity past, that God the Son became like one of us, a human, yet without sin. You can't be a Christian unless you confess that, okay? You also need to confess that he's your Lord, that you do what he says, not perfectly, but humbly and increasingly progressively better until you see him face to face, right? And you ask for, you're a good repenter. You ask for forgiveness when you fail, right? That's what it means to be a Christian, most basically. It's a different relationship to Jesus. It's confessing that he came, became a man, that he was God, became a man, didn't give up any of his godness, which we can talk about, and then he's now your Lord. It's your joy to do what he says. Okay? Not in the sense that you're sinless. Important caveat. Only Jesus is sinless. We will be in glory, but not until then. So he grabs on to kind of the limb of the tree, I think. It's not so narrow as to say you're looking for somebody who says the words, Jesus did not come in the flesh. I don't assume that's how that's always going to look. That might happen. Maybe that's what was happening here. I think if you read 1 John 4 and 5, especially chapters 4 and 5, you get kind of a fuller picture of the nature of this false teaching. That they're denying the incarnation of Jesus. They're denying his lordship over their life. And they're denying the love responsibility they have for other Christians who follow Jesus. Right? That's a bit of a fuller picture than just saying he didn't come in the flesh. There's a way in which you can say that with your mouth and a way in which you can say that with your life. Right? I think the entire person and work of Christ is implicated by that phrase, come in the flesh. Okay? So these false teachers might have been saying, he wasn't really a man, he just looked like one. That's called docetism. So they were docetics. That's from the Greek word uh, dokane, which is to see, to seem. He only seemed like he was a human. right? Sure, he was actually God, but he wasn't actually man. That's a heresy. Right? Or they could have been saying, um, yeah, he became a man, but he wasn't actually God's son. 1 John 4.15. That's also a heresy. You need both. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Right? So I, I think he's grabbing onto the limb of a tree, and the whole tree is involved. If you misconstrue who Jesus is and what he's done in some significant way as to put yourself in a different religion... That's who John's talking about here. It's a great question. So I think by implication, we could say there are other teachings about Jesus than just the incarnation that would be relevant for us to consider here. Other comments or questions on any of that? Then let me ask you, what does it look like for our church to walk in truth? Just like we thought about with love. And if you remember the two examples I gave in the sermon, you're welcome to repeat those.
Yeah, well said. Other examples? What does it look like to walk in the truth in this congregation? Other examples? Sam. Oh, Cody, and then Sam. Yeah. Uh, I know you brought this up last week, but I think it's good and right to give helpful correction mm. in the form of review for just on that 1% that's off. Mm. Hey, brother, hey, sister, consider. Yeah. I think that's right. Amen. Think for a second about the last time you received correction. How long ago was it? Do you get corrected? Are there other people who are able to correct you? If there's not, you should be really concerned. I know a lot of the people in this room, and many of us are very correctable and praise God for that. But I do think we should consider, like, do people correct me? Are they able to correct me? It's a great example, Cody. Sam, you had one? Amen. That's good. Yeah, let, let God and the Bible define every part of your reality. <laughs> it's good, including what love is. I gave two other examples in the sermon. I think a, a letter like first, like Second John, and especially these six verses that we're considering, 7 to 11, is one of the reasons we do, uh, we have both a doctrinal statement, which outlines the basic teachings of Christianity as we understand them from Scripture. So with a doctrinal statement, we're actually drawing a line around ourselves saying if you want into the circle you got to believe these things now that's not something that Garrett or Chris or Jason or any of the elders came up with it's what we understand the Bible teaches on the most basic points defining Christianity you can't get in that boundary unless you agree with this doctrinal statement you'll notice there's lots of things that aren't in it that many of us might have strong feelings about right but we're just trying to define the basics who Jesus is, what God is like, how he's spoken to us and revealed himself. That's, that's what a doctrinal statement is. It draws a boundary around the people who believe it. That therefore means there are people who don't believe it who are outside of the boundary, right? That's a way of separating from false teachers is having a doctrinal statement. Another thing that we do is we do church discipline. So when somebody's in our congregation, and I think this is probably what happened in John's case, you have congregations of people who are Christians as far as we can tell, right? The Lord knows those who are his. We always have to confess that. We aren't infallible ourselves. We don't see with Holy Spirit eyes into people's hearts and know for sure that they're with God. But we go off of the evidence we have, what they tell us about who Jesus is, what their life looks like, do they look like the Lord Jesus? Do they follow his commandments to the best of their ability? Is it their desire and intention to love him and follow him all of their days? Okay, great. Well, then link up with us. We're with Jesus. We'd love to affirm that you're with Jesus too. If that ever stops being the case over a long period of time and there's no repentance, 
we follow Matthew 18, what Jesus told us to do. And we consider people Gentiles and tax collectors because they've given evidence with their life that that's what they actually are, as far as we can tell. Okay? So you lose your ability to affirm that somebody's a Christian sometimes at points when someone stops walking with Jesus or stops confessing Jesus. And then you do church discipline. You put them outside the bounds of the boundary marker because they've put themselves there. Does that make sense? So I think doctrinal statements and church discipline are examples of walking in the truth as a church. I think that's an example of what John's calling us to do here. Any other comments, questions, snide remarks, prophecies? In light of time. Oh. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I was just proud. Yeah, that's really good. Great example. In light of time, I'm going to pray, and we can head out if we need to go get kids or go into the service. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word to us in Second John. Would you give us grace that we might follow the Lord Jesus, that we might walk with him, in love and in truth, that we might see these things as you've told us we ought to see them. Help us to know what love and truth are according to your word, and help us to live lives that honor you, that bring you much glory as we walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.